Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to the Fraudology Podcast. I'm Carice Hendrick. Today we're going to chat about a few news stories that caught my eye that I think impact the fraud prevention and e-commerce industry in general, as well as a few tips that have come out of some recent conversations I've had with some pretty large e-commerce companies. First, I just wanted to remind you, if you didn't get a chance to listen to the previous episode, the first part of the interview with Robbie Perry, highly recommend it. And I know I'm probably a little bit biased, but I really was excited about the information that he provided. And it's not anything that I've heard other places. And I thought that it was really important to share. And part two, you guys, I think is even better. And that's coming out next Tuesday. So be sure that you subscribe to it. I actually heard from a really large merchant today that said that they attended an event this week, earlier in the week, that was for a lot of e-commerce companies. And they said that they learned more about the issuing side and what they do around friendly fraud from my episode than they did for this several hour event. Now, I hope other people learned a lot more from that event. Certainly not trying to, I think everyone's at a different level of education. And so it can be really challenging to make sure that everybody learns something whenever you're creating content. But I thought that was a very kind and generous feedback. There was another post on LinkedIn today that I really appreciated from Elena Smith. I hope you don't mind me shouting you out. She posted about this episode and said that she learned a lot. And here's a couple of things that she said. She said, they take a deep dive into the ways issuers and acquirers take very different approaches to fraud because they have competing interests to avoid liability. Neither side wants to be stuck with the chargeback bill. Here are a few takeaways. Issuers and acquirers in When she says acquirers, let's just put in parentheses merchants too. Each have their own blind spots. Merchants and their acquirers know everything on the service or product provider side, sometimes even down to having video footage of the person who presented the card. Issuers have information about the cardholder and their habits that the merchant doesn't have access to. They rarely share this information with each other. And I talked about that a lot with Robbie. The next takeaway she shares is there is a delicate balance between preventing fraud and introducing too much friction in the consumer experience. The acquirer and issuer both want to process a valid transaction because when they do, there's money to be made. But often more verification to validate a transaction can mean more friction for the consumer. Anyone in e-commerce knows that is a constant balance. The last point, and it's probably one of my favorites, is collaboration. Whether it's between issuers and acquirers or with law enforcement or with the cardholder themselves, can play a part in winning the war against fraud. They dive into specific examples here, which makes my payments heart beat more quickly. She, It was really sweet of her, and I really appreciated it. That doesn't mean that anyone who doesn't post a massive LinkedIn post about my podcast is not one of my favorite people. You are, but I really appreciate it. It was fun to wake up to that alert this morning. So anyway, I think you get the hint and the point, but I think it was one of my favorite episode interviews and I have a few others coming up in the next few weeks that I think you guys are going to really enjoy too. So it's been really fun for me to be able to split this out into my deep dives and, and news as well as interviews. I think All of it just helps us learn. And from what I hear, especially those of you who are in retail and you are seeing the holiday volume start this week for sure. 
A lot of you have seen it for the last couple of weeks. You're enjoying listening to fraud news and information while you are looking at fraud and manual reviews. So I'm glad that you're finding this helpful and informative getting fraud in two different ways, the micro and the macro level, so to speak. <laughs> so the first news story that caught my attention, I think caught a lot of people's attention, and this is more on the fraud tech and business side of fraud, but it, it speaks to a bigger phenomena happening in the industry. So, so Cure announced their Series E of investor funding for $450 million. Along with that investor funding came a new valuation. So in March, six months, or maybe, let's see, I'm not counting well, but seven or eight months ago, the company was valued at $1.6 billion. Now, as of November 9th, 2021, they are valued at $450 billion, sorry, $4.5 billion. The $450 million in valuation was the investment. So that was about 10% of their new valuation. That is insane, you guys. They're now considered, let's see, where is it? It was somewhere in here, but they're considered one of the largest um, or the largest private identity validation networks. That's crazy. Now, some of the stats that came from some articles and press releases include that 12 out of 15 of the biggest banks work with Secure. 35% of their clients are not in the financial sector. So 65% of them are. And I know that's really where they got their start. A few, they have a large roster of client companies, including Voyager, Public, DraftKings, and Stash, as well as many others. Those are just the ones that have given their naming rights or their brand rights to Secure to be able to publicly claim. There's a lot more that I have it in their contract that they don't want to be revealed. So it shows you that they're good size. In case you're not familiar, Secure provides KYC information, real-time identity fraud scores, digital document verification, which I have done an RFI for a client on this and did find Secure to be one of the best and, and one of the most accurate. I think they've been obviously invested a lot of money in that and it shows. It, it can be a really dicey situation when you're trying to verify identity, especially identity documents. When you can purchase deep fakes pretty easily, not even on the dark web anymore in other places too. So their technology is way better than the human eye at verifying if identity documents are valid. So just as an example, if you're not familiar, some services online, apps, marketplaces, iGaming, crypto, banks, etc., now require you to provide a scan of your driver's license or your passport Sometimes you have to do a selfie. Sometimes you have to look in different directions. That's what I'm talking about when I say document verification services. They also, they've been allowing banks and lenders to remove dependencies on legacy systems from credit bureaus. So that's a little bit about Secure. I think I wanted to just talk a tiny bit about what this means for our industry. I think over the last several years, a lot of us that have been in the fraud prevention space, whether it's for financial institutions or e-commerce companies or wherever you are in the payment ecosystem, you're seeing fraud tech providers be acquired at a rapid pace, be valued at higher amounts, get a lot of investments from firms outside in. Even as a small consultancy, I got two emails today asking me if I was looking for funding in my company. There's apparently a lot of money to go around. To me, that seems like pressure, but obviously when you're a product, it's really important to get that funding. So I think that's, it's a great thing. 
But there's also a little bit of a downside. There's definitely been some e-commerce companies, the clients of these fraud tech companies, feeling like sometimes when these investments take place or acquisitions happen, that the company may need to prioritize calls with investors and the companies that have acquired them more than they're prioritizing client and customer service. That maybe in the first several years, they prioritize client service to get to that point, to get to the IPO, to get to the acquisition, to get to the big dollars of investment. And then that's where the priority lies. That isn't the case for everyone at all. We've also seen in the past some companies that have been acquired or have had a significant amount of funding or private equity funding, et cetera, spend a lot of that money on sales and marketing and not as much on product development. And that is something that your clients are looking at. It's something that the e-commerce merchants or financial institutions are aware of. They're very keen to that. So just something for those of you on the fraud tech vendor side that you consider that they're very aware. That's the downside of uh, selling products to people who notice the details and who can really, really tell social engineering tactics, et cetera. But that's a whole other story. I actually had it to pretty, you know, smart fraud professionals from pretty good sized brands that wanted to come on and talk about this specific issue a few months ago. But then one of them, their PR department said they couldn't come and the other one didn't want to do it with the other one. It was a thing, but I'm hoping to bring the merchant perspective on this topic more because I think it's really important for people to know. But it's really hard to know what goes into these valuations. But I, congrats to Sokir and the team. I know some of the people there and I know they've been working really hard. That's a great achievement. And hopefully I'm sure that means additional factors in or additional features in these products that are needed. So I think that's really important. Often the messages I get after announcements like this from other vendors are like, why did they get this valuation? How did they get it? Who do you, what do you know? A lot of times I don't know what goes into it or I don't know who uses them or what their secret sauce is or anything. Sometimes I do. Other times I hear from merchants saying, does this mean that's a good company? Other, com other merchants, and this is not for this specific investment. I want to make that super clear. But in the past for other large investments, some, some merchants have been like, who's investing this? Have they even looked at the product? Because the product isn't really, they're not well positioned in the market. So, you know, there's a little gossip that sometimes happens with these kinds of conversations but or announcements. But I think that it's healthy sometimes. The next story is that ID theft claims are sky high more than ever. I was actually surprised to hear this because primarily in e-commerce, we aren't dealing with identity theft per se. In theory, the when fraud happens on credit cards and things like that, it's if it's because of identity theft, if it's because someone opened a credit card in someone else's name and is using their credit, that never comes back as a chargeback on the merchant. So unless your company provides lending services, some BNPLs are dealing with this for sure, the buy now, pay laters, any kind of financial services, crypto, et cetera. But for the most part, if you're an e-commerce merchant, you're not really dealing with identity theft, but it's still really important to understand the, just the industry and just how much it's blown up. And there's a lot of factors that go into this. COVID is one of them. But Javelin reported that over $56 billion in identity theft was lost for 2020. That's up over 300% since 2019. So identity theft grew three times in one year in 2020. That's insane. The FTC says the ID fraud reports have doubled in that time. So 
I think the 300% is the dollar amount and then the claims themselves, the number of claims have doubled. The two biggest reasons that were cited were digital transformation. So obviously more traffic and fraud is online. So possibly with, you know, credit lines and lending and stuff like that. The other one is government stimulus fraud. That was exactly where my brain went from unemployment fraud to PPP and SBA and IEDL and all of the letters of the alphabet, the different types of fraud there. It definitely was significant and really impacted identity theft numbers for sure. I think a lot of people had their ID stolen for that purpose. Another reason why IDs get stolen often is through IRS claims, getting uh, money back. And the way that happens is that they claim really bogus numbers on the social security number just enough to get money back and then they run off and it can be quite a headache. I had a um, close family member have that happen a few years ago and it was quite a headache and they were really confused because they were like, I owe the IRS money. So how is somebody else able to get my money or like money back from the IRS with my name? But that's they provide bogus information, often add to several kids. It's unfortunate and frustrating, but in the Frank on Fraud blog, which I had Frank McKenna on the podcast last season and really enjoy Frank and his friendship, he also provided a third reason that I thought was really interesting. And I'll be including a link to his article in the show notes so you can dive into it more. But basically what he's saying is it's become a tactic for increasing credit scores called credit washing. Really, what he means is that credit repair companies have been advising customers to file identity theft claims with the FTC. And this is in the U.S., by the way. I should have said that at the beginning. I know we have a lot of international listeners, and we try to be conscious of that, to dispute all negative credit lines. So basically, these credit if somebody has a poor credit score, which I have had in my life, takes to a divorce, one of the tactics that can be advised through hiring a credit repair company is we'll just file identity theft on anything that's negative, anything that says you didn't pay or that you paid late. Just say that your identity was stolen. So you file the identity theft claim with the FTC and then you send these letters to the credit companies to try to have that taken off your credit report. The other thing that is significant is that in April of 2017, the FTC made filing identity theft claims much easier. So Justin Davis, who is a fraud consultant for Point Predictive, which is uh, the company that Frank uh, McKenna also co-founded, in addition to his blog, Frank on Fraud, is that he believes that this is a big reason uh, why ID theft has tripled in the last year. Tripled by dollars, doubled by claims. And he said that when at least car lenders did investigations on all of these claims that they were getting through the credit bureaus asking to have these negative credit lines taken off their account because their identity was stolen, investigators looked at every one of those claims and only found that 2% of them were legit. That's, were legitimate. That's pretty, pretty insane. That's the case that they, 98% of them were fraudulent identity fraud claims. <laughs> that's similar to friendly fraud. And that's really what it made me think of. And what I mean by that is that on the credit card side, we up until 2011, it was a requirement by the issuing banks, the credit card companies, whenever someone claimed that their card was stolen and that a charge was fraudulent, that cardholder had to fill out an affidavit and they had to solemnly swear that their card was not in their possession and have a new card issued to them. 
in 2011, Visa and MasterCard changed those requirements to make it easier for people who were victims of identity theft to, or victims of credit card fraud in this case, to regain their money back. The intentions were good, I think, just like with the FTC changing the process for consumers to make it easier for them to claim that they were victims of identity theft. Previously, it was really challenging to do that. So I think there were good intentions by the governing organizations. But what happened on the e-commerce site was that we just saw a huge increase in fraud reason code chargebacks. But when you would investigate them, only 40 to 60 percent would be valid fraud, depending on the merchant and depending on the system. That was right around when I was hired by one of the largest travel online travel agencies in the world to create their friendly fraud chargeback process. And I've been working on what's called friendly fraud for years with clients and very large companies. And there's a lot of different I and mean, we could talk about friendly fraud for forever. And I probably should have an episode about that. But the reason why I bring this up is I think back to identity theft, both of these things, whether a credit card is stolen or identity theft, I totally get why you want to make it easier for the victim. I think that's great. But there also needs to be some kind of mechanism that makes it more challenging or makes it possible to be able to differentiate from when someone's credit card is actually stolen and when someone's identity is actually stolen, then people claiming that because they want their money back or they want their credit cleaned or things like that. So that's the comparison that I have because of the world I'm in. But I think it's just we've seen fraud just double and triple and quadruple if on the chargeback side. And a lot of it's because it, it's just become a catch-all. And I think, unfortunately, that's what's happening with identity theft. So I really appreciated that Frank and Justin both brought this to the attention because I think a lot of times these headlines can make it seem like there's a lot more legitimate fraud. And I truly think there is. I actually think it's diversifying and things like refund abuse and fraud and promo code abuse and fraud and all these other areas. But I think that the other thing is just these we also have to just understand how the data is calculated, right? And if a big change is made like this and you see a huge spike, that could be why too. So that is why I thought it was a great article to share. And I will put it in the uh, show notes. The tips I had for today came from a couple of conversations I've had on merchant collaboration calls recently around the importance of bin data. So if you don't know what a bin is, that's completely okay. It's the first six digits of the credit card. So it's the bank identification number. If you look at the first six digits of your credit card or your debit card, that actually tells all the way through the payment system when you make a purchase or anything else, what bank to pull the, the money from. And then the other digits have each digit and credit card actually has a significant meaning. I don't remember that part of my training in merchant services, but I know I had it. I'm sure you can Google it if you're interested. But what's most important is that the first six digits means what bank it's with. And then in addition to that, so, uh, like larger banks will have multiple bins. They'll have one uh, bin for their rewards card, another bin for their corporate card, another bin, different things like that. So the frustrating thing is that there's actually not an, act an official bin list from the card network, specifically Visa and MasterCard. And I know I don't know if this is still the reason, but the reason that I was always provided with on why they don't publish bin lists was because of interchange. On the payment side, you may know that different card types have different 
fees associated with it on the interchange side. And those are the fees that the card brands and then the bank charge. The easiest one, the easiest example is a rewards card. If you have an air miles card, a gas rewards card, any card that receives points, whenever you use it at a merchant location, they're paying more than they would if it was just a standard credit card. That doesn't mean that you need to stop doing it. It's just something to be aware of. But also what the card brands were worried about is if they publish a list of which bins are the rewards card, which bins are international, which bins are, you know, corporate and all the other different categories of interchange and the fees assessed, that merchants would start to blacklist certain card types because of interchange. Now, I think that is from a very long time ago. I think, especially in e-commerce, no one's going to turn down a sale because they have to pay a few extra pennies or basis points. Maybe there might be a few merchants that would, but I don't know many. And on the payment side, they use the bin data to understand, is there a bank that is declining a lot of transactions and abnormally amount of transactions on their site, especially for digital goods? That can be a challenge. And I could go down that rabbit hole, but I'm going to stay on attack. But from a fraud perspective, there are some merchants who rely on it very heavily, and there are other merchants who have never really thought of it before. And so we were having this conversation in two different calls because there have been some specific bins recently that have come up as possibly compromised, or at least they have a high percentage of fraud. There was one specific one that a very large retailer, it was a big card for sales too. So they were like, the majority of these are good. But over a two-month period between fraud attempts, so orders canceled and identified as fraud, as well as chargebacks, so approved transactions that um, went through the chargeback process, 9% of the sales on that bin were fraud, which is really high. So we were talking about these different things, and one of them was international. And on another merchant call, I had somebody ask, why would I, I don't track that. I don't even know where to get it. Why would I get it? You might be able to get it in your gateway or your PSP if your fraud provider doesn't provide a bin. Some fraud providers have their own bin directories that they've assembled. They are things you can Google. They're not always accurate because some bins are sold to other banks, but they, they're usually pretty accurate. I would say 90%. So they can be used in two different ways from fraud perspective. And I'm just going to go over some high level. There's also some more detailed ways. But when you're looking at manual review and you're looking at a specific order and you're trying to figure out, is this fraud? Is it not fraud? You can look at those first six digits and figure out what's the country. You can just Google it, right? There's one that's high risk right now that's from another country. So an example would be from Israel or Australia or Switzerland or Germany or Brazil or wherever it is. And if your transaction is in a different country and they're wanting to ship to that country. So if you're a U.S. merchant, for example, and you see an Australian credit card, but the billing and shipping address are in the U.S. And when you look up that person in an identity verification system or something like that, they've been at that address for a long time. It doesn't completely make sense why they would have an Australian credit card, but that Australian credit card or, and a lot of international cards don't have AVS. So sometimes fraudsters love international cards for fraud because they know that there won't be an address verification system service on that. So it's just one hoop that they can get across. And there are definitely instances of international cards being used, especially with travel and and just all kinds of things legitimately. But if there are other risk factors, that's something to consider. Also in manual review, looking at the type of card, is it prepaid? Is it debit? Is it credit? 
that can also inform your decision on the risk assessment. So those are two ways that you, when you're looking at an individual order, how to use those first six digits. And then when you're looking for high-level reporting or data analysis, it's great to look for patterns of fraud attempts or on chargebacks. So looking at your chargeback data, looking at your fraud attempts and saying, and just sorting them by bin, by the first six digits uh, of the card. And you may find, huh, okay, we, we seem to have a spike in this bin or this bin being fraudulent. That doesn't mean you need to block the whole bin. I wouldn't recommend that. There's been a few very rare instances where I have where every single order was fraudulent or it makes zero sense for there to be purchases with that merchant on a card from a very small country in another place. Like it's just another continent, but it's just, it really varies. I think for the most part though, if you see something like that, where you see, huh, okay, well, we have an abnormally high volume of bins of cart like fraud on this particular bin, you can, depending on your system, you can actually um, flag it a little bit so that if there are other risk factors, it'll be flagged in your system. Rural systems, there's at least one PSP that a merchant was explaining this week that they've found to be really helpful on bin analysis. So that can also talk to your PSP, find out if they have that type of reporting. The other thing I wanted to mention about bin lists, the thing that's the most frustrating to me is the fact that the bad guys all have bin lists. The fraudsters have them. The best bin lists are on the dark web or in criminal sources. They really rely on them. A lot of them will buy card dumps in, and that's what they call them. And it's like a big bulk order of cards. They'll order them by bin, uh, especially if they're high dollar bins. Obviously the Amex Black card is very popular. Other credit card companies have similar high, high net worth individual credit cards that might have a private jet club or something like that. Fretzers love those cards because then if they make a high dollar purchase on it, they know it'll be authorized and it probably won't be flagged for fraud because it could be very common for that cardholder. But there's other reasons too why they buy it by bin. Sometimes it's because they have studied that bank's authorization patterns and they think they know how they could at least get the bank to authorize the transactions. So there's lots of different reasons for it. But my whole plea to card brands around this issue is that if the fraudsters have it, then we need it. And we need to have more accurate information than they've cobbled together. That would be my plea, whether that falls on deaf ears or not. Who knows? As you guys all know, there's a long list of things that I would love to change about the system. But right now, we got to deal with what we got. So anyway, that is, I was just checking on my notes to make sure that I covered all the things I was planning to today. That is it for this week's episode of news that you can use as I've coined it very cheesily. But again, please join me this Tuesday, November 17th for part two of Robbie Perry's interview. It's really good. And the following week, is going to be an equally really good interview. So very excited about that. And I hope you guys are too. I will talk to you then.
thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.